Okay, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And just a very quick recap as to where we left off last week. And I showed you that there has been a religious conspiracy found back in the Old Testament in reference to the Jews rejecting God the Father, which then found its way into the New Testament in reference to the Jews rejecting God the Son. And that's one of the reasons why so few Jews are saved, because they are under this conspiracy, this perpetual conspiracy, and yet we have to pray for the Jews, because they are beloved for their father's sakes. On top of that, we left last week in verse 16, where Paul has been saved, and I was pondering as to the exact moment he was saved, and I was looking at Acts chapter 7 this morning, in verse 23, and it says, in reference to Moses, and when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Something happened in reference to Moses, turning from pagan Egypt to suffering Israel. And that, of course, was a turning point for him. But what we're not told from 7.23 is that the Lord intervened and did something in the hearts of Moses. Similar language is found back in Luke 15 in reference to the prodigal son. It says he came to himself and he turned, ran back to his father. And as he was running back to his father, his father was running to him. And again, Luke 15 doesn't tell us that the Lord had to intervene to change his heart. And I say this because our Calvinist brethren, our Calvinist friends would have you believe that unless the Lord does something, unless he intervenes to make you alive or flicks the switch you'll never come to him now i will say this that you are dead in your sins before you are born again that's obvious that's why you need to be born again or born from above john chapter 3 but to teach that you can't tie your shoelaces to teach that you don't know right from wrong until you are saved is highly problematic so moses came to himself the prodigal son came to himself and paul the apostle came to himself as well and i like to think that the Scripture at the end of chapter 7 in reference to Stephen's death. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Might have been the turning point for Saul of Tarsus. Because Saul of Tarsus was consenting to his death. Acts 8 verse 1. And something changed within Saul of Tarsus. I like to believe anyway. This is just speculation on my part. But it's a theory that I have. And the same is found in back, back in the Gospel of Luke. Where the centurion says... True, this man was the son of God, because the Lord's words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But as I say, this is just my own private hypothesis. But I have to say this, that I don't think that Paul would have been saved in the sense of going on to be a great servant of the Lord, had the Lord himself not intervened on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting to me that Paul, a Jew with Roman citizenship, wasn't saved in Jerusalem, but in Damascus, which pictures his dual nature, a Roman Jew or Jewish Roman, whichever you would like to have it, but he has two parts to his character. He's Jewish, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, which allows him to preach to the Jews, and yet at the same time he is a Roman citizen, which allows him to speak to the Romans, which allows him to speak to the Gentiles, and that's why he is our apostle, and if you are a Gentile, he is your apostle. 
But last time we left it in verse 16, and I'll just read it from verse 16 to start the broadcast. And I hope the Lord will bless today's broadcast. And please also give us a reception report if you're listening to this on the shortwave, or if you are listening to this on the internet, or if you are hearing this wherever you are in the world, please do let me know. We'd like to know what the reception report sounds like to you. Verse 16 from chapter 9. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's the calling, Paul. You're going to be saved, Paul. You're going to follow me to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to show you how many things you will need to suffer for my name's sake. It's going to cost you something to follow the Lord. Salvation is a free gift. Listen to me. Salvation is a free gift. You got saved by believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are kept saved by believing in him and trusting on him. But to follow him is going to cost you something. Sooner or later, if you put yourself out... You're going to pay a huge price to follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goest. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. And Ananias went his way, and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. The Lord appeared to Ananias, in verse 10, going down to 11 and 12 and he says to Ananias go down to Saul of Tarsus he's staying with one Judas in a place called Straight Street which is still in Damascus to this day and he says but I know this man Lord he's a very dangerous character he's put many of your saints to death and the Lord says never mind that get down now and he goes down by faith much like we found with Philip going down by faith into Gaza into hostile territory But 17 says, putting his hands on him, said Brother Saul. He's calling him Brother Saul before he has even been baptized. And I point this out to you because some people say, well, you're not a brother or a sister in the Lord until you are baptized. No, you get saved by believing on the Lord. And once you are saved by believing on him, then you are baptized. The two are not the same. You don't get saved by being baptized. You got saved by believing on the Lord. And I can't stress that enough because some people put works before salvation. And if you do that, you're going to fall into all sorts of problems. But he's called Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, in reference to Acts 9, 4, 5, and 6, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight, physical sight, first of all, and also spiritual sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. This is very similar, is it not, to what we saw last time in Acts chapter 8 in reference to the Samaritans awaiting for the apostles to go down to pray for them. They too might receive the Holy Ghost. And the reason for this is quite simple. The Lord is pure. He's holy. He's sinless. He won't allow anybody else to do his work for him. So he says to the apostles and their associates and here being Ananias, for here and now, up until the first 10 chapters of Acts of the Apostles. Only you have the truth. So salvation is limited just to you individuals. In other words, it's going to fall to you to go out and preach the gospel. As people get saved, as people are added to the church, I'm going to step back and allow others to continue on the Great Commission. But for here and now, it's going to fall to the Apostles and Ananias, Philip and Stephen as well, but only those group, or only that group of men. 
And that underlines the exclusivity of the Lord. And it's his choice as to who he chooses to do what for him. But here Ananias has gone down. He's found Saul. He's called him brother. Before he's even been baptized. He's laid his hands on him. That he might receive his sight. And be filled with the Holy Ghost. This of course is building up to the greatest conversion. No doubt in the history of the world. As far as I'm concerned anyway. 18. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith. And arose and was baptized. Scales have fallen from his eyes. And we say many times that until we were born again. We couldn't see anything. We couldn't perceive anything. We were completely dead in our trespasses and sins. And we certainly were. And you think to yourself, what a fool I was going to mass. What a fool I was going to mosque. What a fool I was going to temple. What a fool I was doing this. What a fool I was doing that. What a fool I was believing in this. What a fool I was believing in that. But hindsight is a great thing, is it not? But here, Paul has had his scales removed in a supernatural way. He receives his sight, he rises, and is baptized. And I think this baptism is the baptism found back in Matthew 28, to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And one thing that you didn't find in verses 17 and 18 was Paul speaking in tongues. But some people say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 13? Though I speak with tongues of angels and tongues of men, so on and so forth. Surely Paul spoke with tongues. Listen, Paul spoke tongues of men because Paul was a traveling evangelist. And those languages would have been known languages, not gibberish that we hear today. And on top of that, Paul went to the third heaven. Hence why he speaks about speaking the tongues of angels, so on and so forth. But you're not finding Paul here speaking in tongues like we found back in Acts chapter 2 in reference to the apostles. And I showed you last time, apart from the Samaritans... In chapter 8 and Cornelius in chapter 10. And I think there's one more group of people in Acts 19. That's it. Most people that are being saved thus far in the book of Acts are not speaking in tongues. And I showed you last time how the Ethiopian eunuch believed, was baptized and didn't speak in tongues. So when you hear people making a big song and dance over people speaking in tongues and saying, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. You're dealing with fools. You're dealing with biblical illiterates. And I say that charitably, but it's true. You got saved by believing and trusting, and then you were baptized. It's also interesting from 18 that he's been baptized straight away. I know churches that make people wait six months before they are baptized. But here Paul has believed. He said, Ananias... Lay his hands on him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which doesn't happen today, I might add. No one laid their hands on me to receive the Holy Spirit. And I wasn't physically blind and neither were you, I wouldn't think. But I was spiritually blind. And after having Ananias lay his hands on him, he's baptized. It's also interesting that the apostles weren't dispatched from Jerusalem like they were in Acts 8 when Peter and John were dispatched down to Samaria. But here Ananias, a disciple, a faithful brother, has been dispatched by the Lord directly, I should add, to go down to Judas's house, find Saul of Tarsus, lay hands on him, get him saved, baptised, so on and so forth. So you see there's, once again, a transitional period occurring 
Once again, something different is occurring. But let's move on, please. Verse 19. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. But the grace of God hasn't yet been revealed unto Paul. For here and now, he's building up his strength. For here and now, he is seeking fellowship with those that he once persecuted. He doesn't say, I know it all. Listen to me. Follow me, Captain Saul. No, he's going to wait on the Lord to build him up. And on top of that, he's going to remain with the fellowship, the believers in Damascus, which, of course, is modern day Syria. 20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is a son of God. Soul winning becomes quite normal for Saul of Tarsus. And when I first got saved, I was on the streets in my town, maybe after three or four months of being saved. And 12 months after being saved, I went to Romania. 24 months, 36 months, I was in Cyprus. Then I was in Spain. The Lord always blesses those that are busy and are out and about doing his work. But here, he's in the synagogues, plural, preaching to his own people. Why? Because he is a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He will tell us later in the book of Romans how he wished he could be accursed if it meant his people being saved. And he's preaching to the Jews that Christ is the Son of God. That will save you. Let me say this, please. That will save you. If you're in a bad way and somebody says to you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That will save you. I mean, it's helpful, of course, to articulate how we are saved by Christ's imputed righteousness. And it's always beneficial to take the time to explain substitutionary atonement. But here, this hasn't yet been revealed to Paul. And yet people are being saved. Just by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But when you get to the Pauline epistles, Paul will take time in Ephesians, Galatians and Romans to really underscore how important it is to understand the blood of Christ and to articulate the blood of Christ. And on top of that, Simon Peter refers to the blood of Christ as being precious, sacred, divine. 21. But all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them which called in this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? It's so difficult to shake off a bad reputation. Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name? There's that expression again to call on the name, to believe on the name, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What does it mean? It means simply this that. With the authority of Jesus Christ, you can be saved. With the authority of Jesus Christ, you can be regenerated. And with the authority of Jesus Christ, you can be commissioned to go to the end of the world. One more time from 21. But all that heard him were amazed. I bet they were. They'd seen him for weeks and months, going around like a religious fanatic, trying to cut down this group of Christians known as the Way. And to be fair to Paul, not yet referred to as Paul, but Saul, he thought to himself, well, we've seen the Grecians out, we've seen the Assyrians out, we've seen the Babylonians out, and one day we will see the Romans out. So we're not going to allow this group, known as a way, later to be called Christians, meaning Christ followers, to come along and do great harm to Judaism. But of course, the Lord was always going to reveal himself to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And his love for the Gentiles would be the same as it was to the Jews. So I can understand Saul of Tarsus being 
angry, being infuriated, being threatened, and yet at the same time he's on the wrong side of history. And what did Gamaliel say in chapter 5? You can't overthrow this, because if it be of God, you don't want to be seen to be fighting against God. And yet I'll say this, that you can't kill an idea. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. You cannot kill an idea. And I can show you many wars over the last 50 years or so where they thought they could defeat an idea and they failed miserably. And I'll say this, that the Catholic Church for many years were struggling along, almost on the last leg, but they came through and are now stronger than ever before. And Islam, at the turn of the 20th century, were on the last leg and they thought they were going to become irrelevant. They thought that perhaps they had seen their best time. They were very concerned that Islam wasn't growing around the world. And yet look at them today, stronger than ever before. Both systems are false. But like I just said, you can't kill an idea. You might be able to get a spiritual sword and decapitate a false religion, much like we saw back in the Old Testament when David took a physical sword and defeated Goliath in a physical sense. And he cut his head off and the Philistines scarpered. But by and large, you can't kill an idea. And that's why the Lord says, don't even attempt to change a system or a society or a false religion. Get people saved and then call them out of that system. That's what the church is. We are a called out people. We are a peculiar people. It's not our job to try and change people, systems, religions or governments. We preach the word of God and that's all we are expected to do. But one last time from 21. But all that heard him were amazed, no doubt within the synagogues, and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent? that he might bring them bound under the chief priests. Oh yes. And that's why Paul's conversion is so important, because on the one hand he is killing people, indirectly of course, interrogating people, directly no doubt, torturing people, directly no doubt, and yet from that the Lord is going to save him, he's going to turn him, he's going to convert him. And that's why I say this piece of scripture is no doubt the most important thus far in the book of Acts in reference to a man's conversion. But don't get me wrong, every conversion is important. Your conversion, if you are saved, is just as important as my conversion. But here, uh, Saul of Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul, is going to write 14 epistles, if you give him Hebrews. And this man will change the world forever. That's why I spend so much time speaking about Paul in such a reverential way. But I know he's just a man. He's only a human. We don't worship him. We don't call him Holy Father. We don't fall down at his feet and kiss his feet or kiss his ring, as some ignorant people do. He would battle the old nature in Romans chapter 7. He would lament his sinful states in Philippians chapter 3. So don't think he was any different to you and I. No, he wasn't. He may have known more than you and I know, and what he forgot we'll never know, but he was just a sinner like you and I, saved by grace like you and I, failed every day miserably like you and I, and yet from his Conversion, something remarkable, is about to occur. 22, please. But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. Like Stephen, like Philip, he has the same spirits. And he's going to the Jews, proving that Christ is the Messiah. Hamashiach. Yeshua Hamashiach. That's what the Jews called him. Our blessed Saviour. And yet let me say this very quickly, if I may, that... 
Although the Jews have rejected him for centuries, as their forefathers did to the Old Testament, patriarchs, prophets, kings, so on and so forth, there are more saved Jews in the world today than ever have been since the day of Pentecost, which proves we are in the last days, which proves that we are quite possibly the generation that will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he's increasing in strength, physical and spiritual, and he's proven to the Jews in Damascus, in their synagogues, that this is very Christ, that Jesus is a promised Messiah, Hamashiach. He's the one foretold right back in Genesis chapter 3 in reference to the seed coming from Eve. And the Jews have waited for centuries for this moment to occur, and yet how tragic it was that when he arrived in 4 BC, when he came of age, around 30 years of age, for three and a half years, the Jews, for the most part, rejected him. They treated him with contempt, much like their fathers had done back in the Old Testament. And that's why I started this broadcast, highlighting the fact that this religious conspiracy has been going on for millenniums. But let's move on, please. 23. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. And the laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. That word counsel, I detest that word counsel. The first counsel mentioned back in the Gospels was in reference to Caiaphas and co. Planning and plotting to kill the Messiah. And here this counsel has been called to kill the Apostle Paul. Not yet called Paul. Still referred to as Saul of Tarsus. When I get to I think it's chapter 13 I will explain why I think his name was changed. But if you go through church history the Council of Nicaea was at enmity against Bible believers, the Council of Carthage, the Council of Trent, again was put together to combat Bible-believing Christians. And around the time of Trent, the Jesuits were raised up to do great damage to Protestant Britain. And the Jesuits were put together to undermine biblical Christianity. And of course, if you know anything about history, you know that the Jesuits wanted to destroy King James and Parliament. And if you get hold of an old dictionary and look up the word Jesuit in your old dictionary, let's say for over the last hundred years or so, the word Jesuit means assassin. And yet I struggle to find any verse in the New Testament where the Lord called anyone to go out and kill those that refused to believe on him. Jehovah sent his son to die for our sins, whereas Allah sends his sons to die for him. The two gods are not the same. But here, this conspiracy has now deteriorated. Here, this conspiracy has become more sinister. And they're laying await, day and night, watching him, ready to pounce on him. We are still in Damascus. And this period of church history is fascinating because, on the one hand, it shows that the Lord has already moved beyond Jerusalem, the eternal city, to Damascus. And this hostility is building up. And if you look at Damascus today, there's so many wars going on. There's so much animosity, such hostility, bloodbaths, nations fighting over Syria. And you know that the devil's behind that, of course. And here, the Jews are going to plot to kill Saul of Tarsus. They felt threatened, and that's why people today will put Christians to death, because they feel threatened. And this was told back in John 16 by our blessed Lord, that they're going to come people after me from within, and they're going to persecute you, they're going to torture you and put you to death, and think... That they are doing God a service. Look at 25 please. Then the disciples took him by night. 
and let him down by the wall in a basket. The disciples took him by night, because it was safe, and let him down by the wall in a basket. Like Herod, the devil was behind him, and here the devil is behind this group of religious fanatics, and they are gathering at night, because it's safe, like I say, to lower, pull down in a basket by the sides of a wall. And that is almost mirrored back in Joshua chapter 2, I think it is, where they Rahab comes across some men sent by Joshua, and they promise to save her. And she says, okay, I'll save you. But as word gets around that Joshua has sent men out to spy out the land, Rahab has to also lower them down by a scarlet cord. And here the disciples have taken Paul, and they're going to let him down by the wall in a basket, which suggests to me quite simply that although we are already in heaven, although our spirits have been regenerated, although our conversation is in heaven, we don't put ourselves in harm's way. And if occasions occur that things are looking somewhat serious, we can abandon our positions and we gather later on. So we can fight on, or we can live to fight another day. So I'll close today's broadcast in verse 25. Just say this very briefly that what you've read this morning is monumental. And on top of that, you're seeing Paul being rescued by the brethren because they were fearful that the Jews would kill him. And yet saying that, let me say this, that Saul of Tarsus was safe as far as the Lord was concerned. He was in the will of God as far as the Lord was concerned. And yet, to be fair to Saul of Tarsus, he doesn't yet understand how the Lord's sovereignty and how his service for the Lord is going to work. So don't think this is any evidence of cowardice on Saul of Tarsus's part, no. But like most people, he is simply trying to keep himself safe. But I will expand more on that theme as we go through Acts of the Apostles. And uh, next week we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 26.